All right, y'all. Um, so today we have a scripture reading from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me, before me, in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Amen. Thank you for that. Hey, y'all. I'm back. I'm alive. I made it. Um, my name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and um, I'm one of the pastors here at Zao. <clears throat> I have been a little corona lately, uh, and so wasn't able to join you in person last week. Um, I know a lot of people have been popping into my feeds or messages or DMs, um, and just trying to check in on me. So I want to um, thank you all for your concern, your prayer, um, your reaching out and whatnot, um, and just let everybody know I'm, I'm doing really well. I'm recovering um, very, very well. I'm not totally back up to speed yet, um, but I'm really grateful to be here with you today. So I've got, I've got cough drops, I've got a uh, throat coat, um, and <clears throat> excuse me, you might hear a little bit of that um, this morning, but, uh, but I'm super grateful to be here with you. Um, super, super grateful. I want to just remind everybody that Cameron and I are uh, totally in isolation quarantine. We actually didn't leave, um, didn't leave our own apartment for two solid weeks. And um, in addition to that, we're the only ones who have access to this space. So I'm not putting anybody at risk to be able to come to you live, to have the internet bandwidth to come to you live, um, but super, super grateful to be able to be here with you. And um, we were, you know, as as may uh, be resonant with many of you, we had some plans for this year that just like aren't going as we thought. Um, we, me and Cameron, we also Zhao. Uh, at Zhao, we had, uh, I, I was so prepared, y'all. I like, I am not a planner ahead person. I'm a feel the moment, fly by the seat, you know, where the spirit takes you kind of person. But I've been trying to grow in that. I've been trying to grow in that area and figure out how to plan with Jesus and, and, and see where the Lord is taking us a few steps before we actually have to, have to get there. And so we had planned out some really incredible sermon series. Um, this spring was going to be about, um, about community and connection and evangelism and um, and just ways to be out and about preparing ourselves for summer, which summer is a big season where we're out and about. Um, and you know what, as we're all under quarantine and dealing, that just didn't seem totally right um, to prepare ourselves for, for lots of uh, intimate connection and public space just wasn't really where we were at all of a sudden. So the first time I ever planned ahead, uh, we had to scrap that plan. I think that that is a reinforcement of the fact that I shouldn't ever have to plan ahead and we're just going to go by the seat of our pants every week. Uh, <laughs> so other than justif justifying my own procrastination, 
what this did was give me some pause about how, uh, how to be community, how to be church in this particular moment. Um, things are different now, and we have to show up for one another differently. We have to show up to ourselves differently. And our relationship with God, uh, though in some ways immovable, unshakable, unstoppable, and infinite, our relationship with God is also actually very fluid. Um, you know, we think of God sometimes as this really static being who, because uh, they are infinite and because they are across all time and space, um, doesn't need to adjust to fluctuations. But actually, one of the beautiful paradoxes of who God is, is that because God is in relationship with us, and we are finite, and we are fluid, and we are adapting to the things around us, our relationship contains all of that as well. And so we have this anchor in infinity and perfection. Um, but we also have one foot into the, the moving constant streams of the world that is, that changes. And so we need to sometimes pivot our intention of how to be with God uh, in addition to how to be with one another. So as I was reflecting on what I needed um, in terms of the, my relationship with God, my anchoring in that, in that infinity, and also my presence to the world as it is, um, I thought I'd reach out to y'all and see where you were at. And so in the squad page, um, I just kind of put it out there. Like, what are you needing to hear? What kind of teaching? What kind of sermons? What, um, what kind of anchoring do you all need? And I uh, got some really awesome feedback from y'all. Um, people were saying things like, um, you know, how, what to do when you're feeling lost or lonely um, because of quarantine. How to deal with the stress of this kinds of change. Um, how to cope when people are, are condemning you or shaming you. And we had a couple of different people mention grief and how to cope with grief. Someone in particular actually said how to pair grief with joy and how to hold all those things at once. A couple of people mentioned trying to connect to God in the midst of struggle or hardship or doubt. And then, of course, there's how to handle anger at the injustice that we're seeing in the world. And honestly, y'all, that collection of big sort of existential questions that have meaning across time and space, but also um, are really bound to the here and now, that drove me straight to the wisdom literature. Now, wisdom literature is a type of writing in the Bible. Um, sometimes here we talk about how the Bible is not um, one singular book, but it's actually a collection of books, more like a library than a single volume. Um, and and within, within that library is a vast array of genres. Now, the wisdom literature is a collection. It's sometimes thrown together all as one thing, but it's really not one single thing. It's a lot of different things that are, are sort of bound together by themes. Wisdom literature is probably one of the loosest genres in scripture and actually contains other genres within it. But it's teachings, teachings that have been around for thousands of years that people felt were so important to, to pass on, to remember, to write on their hearts, to speak with their lips over and over and over again and eventually include in the scriptures. And so the wisdom literature, which is sometimes called the wisdom literature covers it all. Sometimes it's called the wisdom and poetical books. Um, it contains Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Song of Songs. 
The wisdom literature is, uh, is about how to live. It's about uh, what, what felt like good advice, good thinking. Um, it contains debate. It contains sayings and observations. And um, across this wisdom literature, there's not necessarily a cohesive agreement on the way to live. It's more like a lot of different voices in conversation with each other, which is one of my favorite things about scripture. I think that gets so lost in our modern age. We like to think of scripture as, as presenting one singular argument for any particular thing. And in fact, wisdom literature gives us this vast array because wisdom is complex and we need some wisdom to speak into our lives in, in some moments and other wisdom in others. And so, um, one of the things that has been inspiring to me about wisdom literature is that vast spread. And I'm going to play for you a little clip. There's something called the Bible Project. Um, the Bible Project is, a, is uh, an organization. They put out materials primarily through YouTube, these beautiful videos, um, kind of walking through some of the basics of scripture. Now, the Bible Project focuses their wisdom literature um, category just on three books, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. The other two, Psalms and Song of Songs, are more poetry um, and more loosely connected to the wisdom genre, so that makes sense. Um, but I wanted to share with you all just this really short clip uh, introducing wisdom literature as a concept. And if you're really um, intrigued by all of this, I uh, really want to encourage you to check out the Bible Project. They do these videos um, kind of diving deep into it, um, probably like 15 to, to 20 minutes on each of these uh, each of these books if you want to kind of dig deeper. But for now, we're going to test my, um, we're going to test my technological capabilities, and I'm going to see if I can play this video for y'all. All right, here we go. All right, y'all, did we do it? Oh, it didn't work. Oh, no. The sound didn't work. All right, well, y'all, thanks for bearing with us. Um, if you want to check that out, that's actually just the teaser trailer of um, the um, Bible Project's uh, wisdom literature piece. Um, but it, it just, I, I love, for me, I'm a really visual person. And so like seeing the visualization, uh, the artistry that they bring to telling about these books is really powerful. Um, so uh, yeah, please do, please do check that out. But we're going to be resourcing, we're going to be using that stuff a little bit throughout here. But wisdom literature contains um, wisdom from across centuries, millennia. Um, and, and it's this universal meaning making. 
See, elsewhere in scripture, we make meaning uh, through a lot of different things, but primarily story. And a lot of it is centered on the story of Israel, the chosen people and, and that people's relationship to God. And then later into um, the New Testament, we have the story of Jesus and, uh, and the people who would become Christians. And, and so we have um, this storytelling that's highly specific to particular cultures. Wisdom literature is trying to make meaning also, but it does so in this much more universal way. Wisdom literature has sayings and observations. Um, Proverbs is a collection of of Proverbs, um, but there are also other books that have sort of proverbial sayings in them. And as you may know, Proverbs are not limited to the Judeo-Christian tradition. There are many um, African and Chinese Proverbs that have permeated into um, our modern American culture because wise sayings are always useful. Um, and there's, there's a lot of overlap. So for instance, there is a, a proverb uh, that comes out of Africa saying, um, sticks bundled together will not be broken. Those of you who are familiar with uh, Ecclesiastes or have heard Bible passages at weddings before may be like, hey, that sounds really familiar. Well, that's because in Ecclesiastes it says, a cord of three is not easily broken. And, and so you see these kind of universal sayings, these things that just feel true and are true and need to be passed on. But in addition to those aphorisms, the wisdom literature also contains uh, debates. There's a lot of disagreement. Job is my favorite because there's just this ongoing debate about meaning. And there are teachings about how to live well. There's philosophy about what it means to be human. Wisdom literature contains all of this and more. And I think what's really interesting and beautiful is that combined in with that, the philosophical, the debate, the sayings, is also prayer and poetry. So whereas you have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job doing these big meaning questions, you also have Song of Songs and the Psalms making meaning through metaphor and imagery and prayer, direct conversation with God, sometimes praising God, sometimes lamenting, sometimes raging against God. And so all of this comes together to have the conversation about what it means to have a good life, how to prosper in a world where injustice is all around us, how to follow God when it seems like nothing is working, and also how to feel connected to God, how to praise God um, in the midst of of blessing and strife. So uh, we're going to just dive in a little bit, and we're going to start with the Psalms. Now, the Psalms, like I said, are more poetry than some of this other classic uh, wisdom uh, context, but there are specifically wisdom Psalms as well. And so um, we're going to hop right into Psalm 1 and see where the Psalms begin for us. And I'm I am also out of my depth here. Here we go. All right, I think I did it. Psalm 1. Okay, so this is how the book of Psalms begins. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in a seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. 
The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right. So first of all, that's really intense, right? Psalm 1 is just like coming straight out the gate. And Psalm 1 um, tends to embody, is embodying this kind of aspect of wisdom literature that's very black and white. Not all of it is, um, but this is very much in the line of Proverbs. You see, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job all have three really different takes on the good life and on how to live the good life. Proverbs is this kind of like straightforward, um, you, you reap what you sow, you get what you give, the righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will be punished. And it's really easy in the world where everything seems topsy-turvy and upside down, where lots of wicked people are flourishing and are ruling and all this kind of stuff, and lots of righteous people and faithful people are suffering and are, made, uh, are oppressed, it's really easy to just say, like, well, Proverbs is stupid. Um, that idea of you reap what you sow just obviously isn't true. And I think that in our context, in our community in particular, a lot of us are struggling with that, saying, like, that can't possibly be true. But there is some wisdom there that we're going to explore. We're going to go into that more next week. But this idea of karma has been around for a really long time and is broader beyond any one culture. And so we have to understand what power there is there. What does it mean to say that there is some connection between what we put out into the universe and what we receive back? how we act in creation and how that comes back to us. There's something there. But that's very Proverbs. And so Proverbs takes this argument saying that there is some sort of um, trend to the universe and that there is order to it. And that order is impacted by how we show up. If we are wise, if we are righteous, if we are following the ways of the Lord, good will come to us. And if we're not, look out. But then... When you think that wisdom has it all tidied up that way, you move into Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is like, no, no, not at all. Ecclesiastes is like, you know, like me, sophomore year in college, smoking closed cigarettes, don't smoke, uh, and, and drinking Fernet Branca and being like, well, well then, actually all is for naught. Ecclesiastes has this perspective that there is some order to the universe, but that it's kind of set in motion, and there's not a whole lot that we can do to impact it. You know, there's a time, there is a time to sow and there's a time to reap. There's a time to live and a time to die. And you know what? You can do all you want, karma proverbs, but uh, death is still coming to you, and you can do all you want, and you can stumble and be wicked all you want, but you will have joy in your life. And so Ecclesiastes asks us to contend with it in a totally different way and say there actually is order to the world, but it's an order we have to cope with, not that we have to control. And then you have Job. And Job is like, uh, well, so the, the Bible project compares Job to the like wizened old dude who's like seen it all. Job has been righteous, but Job experiences tremendous suffering. And so Job says, hey, 
I did this right and bad things are happening to me and everyone's telling me it's because I messed up or that this is just inevitable and all of that feels wrong. And so Job takes this case before God and in Job you have this incredible debate, this back and forth. Well, what if it's this? What if it's this? And the ultimate answer in Job is basically like, well, we don't know but it's worth it to grieve and rage about it. It's worth it to bring these questions to God. It's worth it to have the debate in public and in private and to ask why, ask why suffering and to still pursue a righteous life and to still try our best to engage and to know that that might not guarantee anything. And so across wisdom, you have all of this different perspective and across the Psalms, you have it as well. So we start off the Psalms with this kind of very proverbial beginning that says, you know, the, the wicked will, will perish, the righteous will flourish in the ways of the Lord. And it kind of sets up like, hey, if you're going to engage in this poetry, you can't skip to the end. You can't skip uh, to, to the ennui of Ecclesiastes. You can't skip to the end with this uh, fiery rage of Job. You've actually got to uh, to encounter this premise that actually doing good matters and that following God matters. Walter Brueggemann, in commenting on Psalm 1, says that, uh, that devotion and destiny are non-negotiably intertwined. Devotion and destiny are non-negotiably intertwined. And, and what he means by that is that Psalm 1 is creating a premise that says, hey, I know that you want a good life. And, I, and, and the Psalms, the poetry that we're going to make sense of the life we have with, we have to start from the premise that actually that matters, that our devotion to God matters, and that uh, we, will, we will find a good life. In the midst of all the things, we will find a good life if we are seeking God, if we are seeking love, if we are seeking righteousness. And, and so we begin this book of ancient poetry with a declaration that the good life and the pursuit of the good life begins with the pursuit of God. And Psalm 1 then opens up this 150-poem-long uh, collection now, the Psalms were written over the course of hundreds of years and uh, were kind of collected from hymns. It's not a hymn book itself. It's actually kind of a, a collection of, of songs and poems and reflections all put together to remember. And this psalm book is, is really interesting because there are, there are a lot of different genres within it as well. There are wisdom psalms kind of sprinkled throughout. Psalm 1 is one of them, but there are a handful of others. Psalm 34, 37, 49, 73. Those are all wisdom ones, and they all kind of read in that same proverbial sort of way. You know, blessings on the, the righteous um, and, and curses even on the wicked. But there's a handful of other types as well that actually make up the bulk of it. Many of the Psalms uh, including a lot of the most popular ones, are psalms of praise and thanksgiving. So Psalm 23, for instance, uh, which we, we started with, um, is one of the most well-known. I'm going to hop back to that real quickly. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This is a psalm of praise. This is a psalm of of thanksgiving and celebration of who God is. And there are many of those. There are a couple of others that I thought of putting in there. Um, 121 is uh, a really popular one. My eyes um, look to the hills from where does my help come? It comes from the Lord. Um, There's also Psalm 84 says, Better is one day in your courts, God, than thousands elsewhere. And you may, um, if, you, if you grew up with any kind of Christian church background, you may um, hear the echoes of a lot of psalms in, our, in the songs that you um, experience in church. This poetry is so powerful that even thousands of years later, we are still using it to make music and to praise God. But a full third of the book of psalms are actually psalms of lament, psalms of distress, Psalms saying, God, where are you? God, what's going on? And I think that it's really important to remember this because a lot of the Psalms that get, um, you know, um, cross-stitched into pillows and put on Instagram feeds, all of these are the praise ones. But the psalmists, the many poets who, who collaborated to create these 150 poems, spent a full third of their time in poems of lament. Poems of lament had kind of a threefold structure. First would be the invocation of God, you know, asking often, literally, God, where are you? God, where are you? And then there would be the complaint. This is what's going on. Do you know what's going on? This is what's going on, which is an interesting thing. Because when we think about the God who made the whole universe, the God who knows all, we know that God knows what's going on with us. And yet the poets of the Psalms teach us that it is important for us to lay out our complaint, to lay out our feelings, to say, God, have you seen this? Even though we know God has seen this. To say, have you seen this? Are you seeing this? And then finally, a request, a request for intervention. God, come fix this. God, where have you been? You better get here now. And woven throughout all of that is trust. There's this beautiful trust in God, even in the midst of that lament. So that invocation, God, where are you, often will have an an expression of trust as well. Where are you? You are the God who is normally here. The complaint will reference God's goodness to say, God, these people are doing horrible things. It's against your will. These people aren't following your law because your law is good and what they're doing is harmful. And then finally, the request for intervention, that God, please come, will often remember the times that God has come, that God has been here, that God has intervened in the past. And to say, God, you better get here now, like you did before. Please don't forget me. So a full third of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. I'm going to pause right here because my computer is at 11% and I'm going to ask Cameron to come figure out what is going on with all of that. Um, And I'm going to, again, thank you all for bearing with us in this new form of church as Cameron is scurrying um, to to fix it. Um, I also want to let you know that this is not my typical sermon. I have notes on the screen. I have notes in my notebook. I have notes on this. And I have my open Bible that I'm going to read from. Um, So my brain isn't fully back 
in, there we go. Um, so um, I think we're, we're solved now. Oh, that's not, okay. We're solved now, technical glitch is over, back to the Psalms. All right, so part of the beauty of the, the Psalm book is that it is this mixture of lament and praise. Somebody had mentioned how do we hold all of our grief and anger and joy at the same time. And this poetry collection actually really gets us um, a, a lot of example of how to do those, not only um, throughout the course of the book, because the book actually begins more in lament and moves into praise over time, even though both are sprinkled throughout, but also even within a psalm itself. Within a psalm of praise, for instance, it will sometimes call out some of the badness that is happening in the world. Within a psalm of lament, those expressions of trust that I mentioned are woven throughout. So for instance, um, Psalm 23 is one of the most famous praise ones. Psalm 22 is one of the most famous laments. And it's famous in part because it's the lament that Jesus quoted while he was on the cross. So Psalm 22 begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is where I need to go to my actual very beat up uh, loved Bible. So at the beginning, it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from my words of groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And so this is this feels very unequivocal, you know, lament and suffering. And it moves through and there is uh, beautiful, powerful, gut-wrenching imagery of the way that the body is broken by suffering. And then it, it continues and it, it moves through that suffering. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's so powerful. And then it shifts Around verse 19, it says, But you, O Lord, do not be far away. And that's that request, that request for help. O my help, come quickly to my aid. And then it continues on. And by verse 24, it says, For the Lord did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him which is a really interesting place to arrive near the end of the psalm from the beginning, which literally said, I cried and you didn't answer. And so how can the poet hold both of these things in tension? Those both things are true, feel true in that moment. I cried and you haven't answered. I'm crying out to you. What is going on? And also, I have cried and you have turned toward me. You haven't hid your face from me. I praise you for that. And so holding this tension is about claiming both all at once and giving voice to both experiences in our bodies and in our communities and in our lives. The poets can hold all of that at once and they urge us to do the same. All of this wisdom literature was meant to be passed on and most of it actually wasn't meant to be read. It was meant to be heard. It was meant to be spoken it was oral tradition, which most of our scripture comes first and foremost from oral tradition, but the wisdom literature in particular was developed orally. There are lots of wisdom passages that say, give your ear, which is literally about listening rather than reading. And 
You're supposed to internalize it. You're supposed to ingest it. You're not just supposed to read it and move on with your day. In fact, there were whole um, vocations built around memorizing these scriptures. And so if you were a scribe, your job was to hear these scriptures over and over and over again so deeply they would get ingrained in your body and written on your heart and into your memory that you wouldn't just memorize them, you would like know them. And then your job would be to speak them, to speak them to anyone who would listen and to pass them along. And so scribes would then have students that they would teach and they would remember and they would recite over and over again. They would sing the, the passages as well to help remember them. And so they moved from just encountering the text to memorizing it. And when they would memorize it, it was, it was something that would transform their bodies. And that's why it says over and over, give your ear. But then it says, write these on your heart. Meditate on them day and night. That wasn't just uh, pretty words. That was literally what people would do, and they would be changed by it. And so if any of you found any familiarity, when I was saying, I saw in some comments, people are singing church camp songs, right? Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. By singing that over and over again, that is a piece of scripture, a piece of wisdom that has been written into your being, that you're not likely to forget in the way that you would forget, you know, the last article that you read, or, um, or the thing that you last saw on TV. These scriptures aren't supposed to just pass over us. They're not supposed to just interest us or pique our curiosity, and then we move on. The wisdom is supposed to be ingrained in our being, written on our, our leb, which is both heart and mind. It's translated often as one or the other, um, but it's, it's both. How do these scriptures work their way into our hearts and our minds? And the most beautiful thing to me is that as these uh, scribes were memorizing, the, the written word was actually just a point of reference. Um, scholar Karen Armstrong talks about how the, the written piece of scripture was uh, more like a musical score for a musician who already knew the piece. It's a point of reference, a point of, of memory but the actual work is contained within the artist. And like musicians, once the piece was known so thoroughly, an artist would riff on it. An artist would improvise like jazz. You have the basics, the building blocks of wisdom, and you grow from there into speaking new wisdom into being. And that is how the scriptures evolved and changed. That's how new wisdom emerged from the shared collective wisdom that was passed on from generation to generation. And so we are invited to encounter the scriptures now. Now we can encounter them with passing curiosity. Uh, I think one of the easiest places to start, if you want to connect with your scriptures and you don't know where to start, one of the best places to start is the Psalms, the poetry and to open to the poetry and, and see what someone had to say about what it meant to be human and what it meant to follow God and what it meant to pursue the good life, what it meant to grieve the suffering of the world. The Psalms are an incredible place to dive into scripture. And if you want to go deeper, if you want that scripture to be ingested, if you want that to change your heart and mind, now you must revisit it. 
and you can go over and over. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. As a deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you. You can spend time in the laments and know that you are not alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My body is broken. My heart is like wax. And take that into your being. Meditate on it. See what it really means to you. And finally, you can play with it. You can play with these psalms. You can rewrite them. You can find meaning from meaning. You can take the words that were so powerful to those people so many hundreds or thousands of years ago, and you can find new meaning with your own words now. I'm going to take you back to our scripture slides and show you another psalm. Psalm 13. The original says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul? Christine Robinson rewrote that. She says, How long, O God, how long? How long must I wait to see your face, to feel your presence? How long until I figure things out, heal from my wounds, feel whole again? How long must I live with these longings, with no more than hints or guesses to go on? Look on me and give me answers. Light up my eyes. I put my trust in your love. She goes on. I know that you hold me in the arms of life, whether I feel it or not. If trust and longing are all that I have, then that is enough, and I will sing. Those words mean so much to Christine that she made a different kind of poem from the poem that came before. And there is new truth in her version. New truth that is bound not only to the infinite, anchored to the God who is always, who was, who will be. It is anchored in this moment, bound to her present, to whatever is going on in her life. And if you think that you have to be um, a, a brilliant poet to do this, you don't. If you think that you have to be um, censored and that your language has to be acceptable before God, know that there are many folks who have taken this in wild directions. I'm going to put something on the screen. I'm just going to give a little warning. I've censored it, but you can definitely still tell what it is, and I will um, mildly censor my own language. But I want to show you another reinterpretation of scripture. This scripture, um, it's, it's a reinterpretation of Psalm 10. And uh, uh, Tahina is a, a clergywoman. Uh, and she, was, she actually rewrote Psalm 10 when she was observing um, the, the Kavanaugh hearings uh, and her own experience um, in the world uh, as a woman dealing with misogyny and violence and feeling the weight of that moment reflected in the power of this ancient poem. And so she rewrote a piece of it. So the original says, in what feels like pretty biblical language to us, rise up, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand and do not forget the oppressed. Tahina rewrites this as, wake the F up, God. 
Wake everyone the F up, God. Don't forget us. The original says, why do the wicked renounce God and say in their hearts, you will not call us to account? She writes, these people on the bench are playing God. They think they're fooling themselves, thinking that you don't really know. Psalm 10 says, but you do see. Indeed, you note trouble and grief that you may take it into your hands. The helpless commit themselves to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. She rewrites, but you do know. You do see our tears and our testimonies, and you do something about it. We are telling our stories, God. You are amplifying our voices. The rewriting of these scriptures the riffing. This gives us a powerful way not only to connect back to the ancient truth that the Psalms contain, but to speak new truth, new wisdom into the world, to generate wisdom from wisdom, to find words we didn't know that we had. And in this practice, we are encouraged to hold grief and rage and hope and trust all at the same time. I really do want to urge you to try this practice, to take some time this week and to pick a psalm and rewrite it. Pick a psalm that resonates with you, but break down the ancient language and put it in your own words. Add some specifics, riff on it, find the wisdom that is contained within you, inspired from the wisdom of generations. The book of Psalms is anticipating the anti-empire, the kingdom of God that will come one day, that stands in contrast to the kingdoms of this world. And the Bible Project says this of engaging the Psalms. They say, as we hope for the messianic kingdom, that is the anti-empire, the kingdom of God, the the Jesus um, future that we're hoping for, as we hope for that, As the book teaches us to do, this will create tension for us as we look out on the tragic state of our world and of our lives. And so the Psalms teach us not to ignore the pain of our lives, but at the same time, biblical faith is forward-looking, looking to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom. And so I invite you to spend some time with the Psalms to work through them, to let them write themselves on your heart, and then to improvise and riff off of them and find new truth. Not to ignore your pain, but to cry out fully. And also to have hope, to declare that the God of all things is with you in the same moment that it feels that God has abandoned us all. But to know that God is here, God has been here, and God will be here. And to proclaim that is, according to the tradition, the wisdom that will lead us to the fullness of life. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, things are hard. Things are beautiful. Being a person is complicated. And we praise you for being a God who points us toward that, not away from that. God, we thank you for the songs, for the wisdom contained within the poetry. God, we pray that you would work that poetry and that truth into our very being, 
that it wouldn't pass over us, but that it would root itself in our minds and our hearts, that we would know you, that we would speak you through the wisdom of the ages, that we would riff on that, and that our tongues, our words, would contain new wisdom from your ancient wisdom. Allow us to cry out and to praise your name in the same breath. Amen.